that as, as I've been talking with a lot of my friends, uh, folks that are studying this, preaching it as well, it's so exciting. It feels like, like another adolescence in, in, in my life in Christ. It's all of a sudden there's this like learning curve that is so steep in front of me. And we're able, even at this kind of mature stage of life, and even after you know, 20 plus years right, trying to serve God and study His Word, to suddenly have everything fresh and new and exciting. It's been, been such an encouragement. And so today, as, as we continue to make progress in the book of Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. So go ahead and turn over to there with me. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. Let's pray together. God, as we make our way through this brilliant letter that you've put together to encourage a church in Ephesus, a church of Gentiles who are probably so insecure about their standing in you, uh, Jews that were so skeptical of the Gentiles that were coming in. Nonetheless, you knit them together by the commonality of nothing else but the very blood of Christ. Thank you, God, that you shed your own blood for our souls. And now we gather here, having been equipped by you, called by you, loved by you, to be able to just burst forth in song and praise and prayer and study of your word. I pray, God, that your word does not go back void, but that it has an amazing effect deep in the soul of every one of us here. Please, God, bring this about. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... Paul does something interesting. He does it a lot in his letters. One of the most famous times is in 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul takes a rather distinct tangent from his thought process. And as a matter of fact, it's so distinct here that the NIV even kind of just puts a big old slash mark here, saying he was going somewhere, but he went somewhere else. And that's what we're going to reach as soon as we begin to read this. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then I think what happens to Paul at this point is that he realizes, hey, maybe by mentioning that I'm a prisoner, this, this might kind of concern some folks and wondering, hey, why is it that he's not delivered? Why is it that he wasn't protected? Uh, maybe these people are getting discouraged. Uh, maybe if that's the case because I'm in prison, then I better kind of bring a little encouragement their way. So as soon as he kind of mentions this fact that I'm a prisoner, uh, hey, you know what? Surely, verse 2, you heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery. Made, and mystery is used in this section of scripture more densely and more than anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. That's why the, the title of this sermon is A Marvelous Mystery. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. I think we've already mentioned this as we've been making our way through this letter. And I'll read the rest of this in a moment. But just so that the word mystery uh, isn't misconstrued by us as we look at it time and time again here. I'm doing housekeeping as I stand here. Uh, but the, the Greek word is same as the English word. It's, it's uh, mysterion. Uh, and it's spelled almost exactly the same way, but it is not considered the same way. So when we think of mystery, we tend to think of, you know, Agatha Christie, murder mystery, whodunit, and that a mystery is something for us, if we can just kind of study it enough, 
and observe enough that we'll be able to kind of unravel the mystery and figure out the who done it in, in the who done it. But that's not that's not the way the word was used at this point in time. It was more like you're in the inside now and I'm going to lay some truth on you that would never have been understood if not for me putting this truth right here in front of you so that you could know it. You would never have figured it out. It's only going to come because now that you're here, I'm letting you know. And so this is what God has done for Paul. So let me, let me keep reading here. In reading this then, verse 4, you will be able to understand my insight into this mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the good news, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Those three words are piled up on one another. In the original language, it's um, sun kleromanos, susomos, sumetahos. And it's this alliteration of sum, sum, sum. And all of them would be really unmistakable for the hearers who spoke the language to hear what Paul was doing. He was trying to make all these very similar sounding words, all very grand, to, to really make an impression to whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. And there you are still together in this congregation that it is, this is the great mystery that you get, that you're doing all this stuff together. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But anyway, just to take note as we read that, that Paul used some pretty fancy language as he was doing that. In verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel, the good news, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am the le le I'm less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers, the authorities, in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may proclaim God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, for which, you are, for which are your glory. And then he comes back to the, what, what he began with, is that uh, I'm a prisoner. I don't want you to be discouraged for my sufferings, which are for your glory. So he brings it back at that point, And then he continues on his thought process that he originally had. But just think about this. So far, we've been looking in this book of Ephesians, and we're getting blown away by the love that God has for us, the mercy that he has for us, how undeserving we are. And yet he lavishes us with more and more and more uh, astounded by the, by, by the gift covenant that is ours. And now Paul, as he begins to kind of lay out this tangent of truth to the people to be able to encourage them, he, he gives them at first a mind blowing mystery finally revealed. And it's that the Gentiles are coming in the kingdom. The Gentiles are going to be God's precious possession too. That's not the, the mystery part because that was always 
alluded to throughout the Old Covenant. Here's the mystery part. And you know how they're coming in? By grace. The gospel. The good news. And the good news is a mystery. The law is not a mystery. There's no mystery to the straightforward proclamation of the law. If you obey, then God will be pleased with you. What's so mysterious about that? If you are good, then God will consider you more highly. There's nothing mysterious about that. Everything in the world works that way. But here is the mind-blowing mystery that he has just talked about for two full chapters. And it is not something that is intuitive. It is something completely counterintuitive. And, and any religion that says, do good, and you're going to get rewarded by God, is not a hard one to understand. And by the way, it is every single religion under the sun in the history of the world. Buddhism, Islam, Shinto, uh, sounds like I'm cursing. Uh, I wasn't, I said Shinto. Uh, um, if it, Hinduism, you, you pick it, whatever one, everyone that I can think of and everyone that I've ever researched has, has always had this basic approach. Do right and good things will come your way. And it is only Jesus who gives us this thing that is now considered a mystery. It is only Jesus who dares to say this to you. Not, if you do right, then I'm going to love you. But instead, I'm going to love you and trust that as a result, you will do right. Even before you do right. Even when you are dead in your sins and stinking it up with the filth of all filth. Even at that moment, I'm going to love you. My grandma owns a, a little rental property house. It's a little cinder block house, but it's in Florida, down in Palm Beach area. And my brother lives down there and he sometimes tries to manage the property. Uh, but it's, again, just this little house. And he got a call that, hey, we haven't, we haven't seen the renter in a while. So my brother drives down there and as he drives into the subdivision, as he just gets into there, he starts to smell something. And he's like, what is that? And as he gets closer to the house, the smell only magnifies. And when he walks into this cinder block house where none of the utilities been running, it's just been Florida summer, he walks in and sadly, the renter had died. But he then saw, I think what, what is talked about here, when you were dead in your sins and transgressions. We don't have contact with death so much anymore. Whereas in every other culture and in every other age, when they heard something like, you were dead, they would have been like, ooh, that's repulsive. Like that's a dead body. You gotta be careful, you know, you probably even want to keep your distance. Because who knows what can happen. Even if it's a loved one. Yeah, yeah, care for them. But then as soon as possible, take care of that dead body. Because a, a dead body is something that's it's, you know, quite defiled uh, quite quickly by, by all that, that happened. But this was a dead body stuck in you know, 105 degree in a hot house, in a cinder block house. And it, it was so bad. And the, the defiling of the dead body was so bad. They ended up tearing down the entire house. 
Because no, no cleaning could, could actually take care of it. This is the mystery. We are more defiled and more repulsive than we could have ever given ourselves credit for on our worst day. And yet, we are more loved and so redeemed and more beautiful and more pleasing than you could have ever hoped. That's the mystery. And the mystery is that this gospel, this covenant that brings you Gentiles, us Gentiles, into the, into the embrace of God, is not based on anything that you've done or you will do. It's based purely holy on, we're back in chapter 2, where it says, because of his great love with which he loved us, it's because of this great love with which he loved us, he made us alive with Christ. Think of the difference of even the, the defiling of that dead body to go from that to being made alive. That's the picture he wants to get across to us. Made us alive even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. This is a daring covenant that brings us Gentiles into a relationship with God through Jesus. But this is really our covenant. Then if we don't embrace it, we'll never know the power that was always meant to be ours. The gratitude that just flows in, in astounding ways. And it's a covenant that you never tire of looking at it more deeply. You never tire of thinking about it because you're always fascinated by it. Really, even though I was, God still loved me. Even though now I'm doing it, God still loves me. Really. Man, seems unfair. But I'm glad I'm on the, you know, good end of the unfairness. What a deal. All I did was sin. All I did was ruin everything. It's the only ingredient I added to the equation of the gospel. And this is what God does for us. And by the way, if you're wondering who the Gentiles are, it's us. We are outsiders. Pressed up against the glass, even though there was no glass then. Pressed up, just hoping. Just to get a peek of what is it they got going on. Man, that God seems so different from our gods. What is it they got going on? And then to realize, wow, he sent his own son to die for our souls so that we can come on in, that we can be part of this. That's the mystery that Paul wants to get across, is that here's the inside scoop, everybody. Gentiles, you're in, not just sort of in, you're full-fledged in. Anything that you ever kind of saw in a, in a Jew that made you kind of wonder and even envy, well, forget about that. You've got it and then some. As a matter of fact, all the Jews that you thought were your heroes, beyond all heroes of the faith, you pick it, whether it was David or, or, or Joseph or Abraham, you, you pick it, whatever of those, because of Jesus... You're more courageous than David. Your heart for God is more delightful to him than David while writing a psalm to God. You're more pure and overcoming and resilient in God's eyes than Joseph 
sitting in prison with shackles around his necks and ankles, according to the psalm, because he endured that so as to not defile himself with Potiphar's wife. You're more pure than he. You're more faithful than Abraham, who although he faced the facts that his body was as good as dead, he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God. What does it say about every one of those guys? It says that they never received what was promised. And that only through you would they be made complete. David on the best day with the most beautiful psalm dripping off of his lips, dancing with fervor for the joy of the Lord, is only made complete as you, saved by grace, given the righteousness of Jesus, sing out of key while you're here. As David looks on saying, oh, how sweet that is. How amazing it is of what would they get to be. Oh, the mercies of God. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter even says, angels long to look into these things. You never tire of it. Every time you consider it again, you're more blown away by the depth of the truth of a gospel of grace that is really ours. But then it says, this mystery is, is revealed not just to us, but this mystery is then revealed or made manifest in us. But this is where Paul just goes into like outer orbit at this point. And here's where I'm reading. Verse 9, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. That Paul's basically saying is, all right, I'm going to make plain to everyone this responsibility I have to, to let everybody know the mystery. Administration seems like a, a difficult word there, but I'm going to let everybody know my responsibility to get this mystery out, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. But now check this out. And this is what this point is about here. His intent was that now through the church, he's talking about us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Like, I've read this, I don't know how many times, but because I've never read it and decided to slow down and really consider what Paul was saying, uh, it was just kind of like, yeah, 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 religious words. All right, tell me to do something here. All right? Uh, okay, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now you're talking, Paul. But you know what? Well, we slow down and recognize not just this administration of the mystery that I should be made known to, but he says, this, this mystery, this inside knowledge that nobody knew, that you Gentiles, you're coming on in. And you know how you're coming on in? Because of Jesus, not because of yourselves. You got nothing. Jesus, he's the one. He's hooked you up. Thanks for sinning. That's all you needed to do. Here comes the rest. And, but, but now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known in the heavenly realms. Who, who, what, what is this rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? If you look back in chapter 1, there in verse 21 it says, Christ is seated at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. What does that mean, every name that is invoked? Those are... Those that set themselves up as heavenly powers against Jesus. I don't know all that that involves. 
But, but basically what he's talking about here is that in, in the um, kind of transcendent spiritual realm, in the heavenly realms, you're making a statement as the church. And you're making that statement to these rulers, which, which have a connotation of not being good, like wicked rulers and wicked authorities in the heavenly realms. And, and by the way, you're making that statement is to let them know the manifold wisdom of God. This word manifold is uh, the, the word polypoikolos. And it's an interesting word because when we have a Greek Old Testament, Joseph's coat was called polypoikolos, a coat of many colors. And everything here is about Jews and Gentiles coming together People that are so culturally, ethnically different. But yet, not only are they coming together, but they're getting it together. And despite what would be easy rifts, they're staying together. Even though in the synagogue system that preceded this, the synagogues, probably where this church was planted throughout Asia, which is what Ephesus is the capital of, that, that synagogue system always made allowances for people that were kind of Greek background or more Hebrew background, and they would have segregated synagogues, not in the church. The church is showing by being the church, by being the real church of Jesus, is showing the multicolored wisdom of God. Jew and Gentile, all there together. Polypoikolos just simply means that multicolored. The multicolored wisdom of God. And as I look up here and I read these words, I have goosebumps right now of realizing this is not some wild dream. You know what? Martin Luther King doesn't need to grieve that 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. Sadly, that was his lament as, as he looked at the state of all things religious in America. But praise God that... as as hard as it was to stay together Jew and Gentile, much, much harder than for us to kind of deal with any sort of a cultural rift that would be black or white, Latino, Asian, any of that. I mean, what, what we've got is nothing in comparison. And, and by the way, if, if the church is, is less integrated, less manifold, multicolored than your workplace or the school where your kids go, well, what's that saying about a church? And, and if, if you go to a church that somehow looked at the great emphasis of all the New Testament of making sure that Jews and Gentiles don't go the easy way of the world and just kind of segregate themselves, which never happened, by the way, never happened, didn't happen in the Bible and it wasn't even an issue later in church history. You know when this segregation came? In our time. Well, I mean, time, time of America. Uh, that, that's when it came about. And I think not only Martin Luther King rightly, Martin Luther King Jr. rightly grieved, but, oh my goodness, how about the angels who long to look into these things? How grieved they would be. And if you go to an all-white church and you're visiting with us today... I hope you enjoy getting a look at the polypoikolous wisdom of God. The multicolored wisdom of God. 
If you go to an all black church, and you know what, as I say, all white church, all black church, and probably what you're saying to yourself was, well, you know, I don't really go to an all white church because there is this, there is this one black guy who comes. No. You know that black guy. He's more white than you are. The, the overall thrust of the New Testament leaves no room for being comfortable with, yeah, why don't we just segregate? There's no room for that. And you know, I've said this before, and I, I don't want you to get me wrong here as, I, as I'm saying this, that you know, I, I don't want you to think that what I'm saying right now is if you go to an all-white church or an all-whatever church, all-black, all-Asian, whatever, um, that I'm saying that you should just walk away from that church. Please, please, please don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to walk away from that church. But when I read this, I can't help but say this. Run. <laughs> Run. Not just to be cute, and that was cute, but... <laughs> but... We, we decide that our comfort is more paramount than the, the really difficult making every effort for unity that, that is the banner of the church in Ephesus. And how do, we, how do we study this without that being something that we get to, to really have as a conviction and, and, and the way that we go about living our lives? But that's not just it. Praise God, that whatever it is that you're coming from, you're here, but guess what here is doing? The, the multicolored manifold wisdom of God is sending a message that what's revealed in you is sending a message in the heavenly realms. Well, you're like, okay, so what's that mean? Are we like beaming a bat signal like up there or what's here's, I'm going to read just some of the data that we have biblically. And for us to realize, even as we go about giving it and going after, you know, helping people know Christ and staying faithful ourselves and all the difficulties that are attendant with that, that there's a spiritual battle that's going on at the same time. Well, I mean, even Ephesians makes that super clear. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, it's the same phrase, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's pretty intense. Even Paul says, you know, I, I tried to get to you, but Satan blocked my way. Like, what? I don't, what does that look like? I mean, that makes me like just shake in fear just even thinking about what, what are those spiritual battles that he fought. But there is a spiritual battle that's going on, and somehow or another, in the midst of this spiritual battle, as the angels look down, somehow they take encouragement from us, being this polypoikalist wisdom of God. Check this out. Just if you want to take this little ride with me, you can. Uh, if not, just let me read these to you. I'm going to read from 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 6 of, uh, of an issue when Moab, or I'm sorry, the Arameans are kind of crunching down on the Israelites. Old Testament battle, it's big time stuff, and Elisha is the prophet. 
Now, Elisha is kind of cool as a cucumber, even though the Arameans are about to womp and stomp the Israelites. And Elisha's uh, attendant or protege is like, Elisha, how come you're like not breaking a sweat? Because this is war and they have got overwhelming advantage over us. So in verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord. What shall we do? The servant asked. Hey, don't be afraid. The prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Okay. And then Elisha prayed. Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And this is so freaky. Then the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I know how much would you like want to be able to have that? Or maybe you wouldn't want to have that. No, I know. No. If you only saw what I saw, you'd be on edge too. It's a spiritual battle. And it's, but, but, but it is. And it's super intense. How about this? Just even how, how this battle in, involves us all the time, more than we realize. In, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel begins to pray as he's in exile and all of the Lord's people are in exile. And he begins to pray uh, for, for the people of God. And it's an interesting where it says this in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for, the, for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, that's one of the archangels, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. What does that look like? I mean, you're, you're there. He was on his knees. It said that earlier. That he was on his knees. He's praying. And all of a sudden, whew, an angel that in the New Testament, when they saw angels, not even of this caliber, they shook and became like dead men. Suddenly, this is the angel that says greetings as you're in prayer. He instructed me and said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. And I don't know if this is like a dispatch center in heaven or how this works. But that, that's the idea that he's got here. A word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Then he goes on to tell him the vision. Now, moving on down to chapter 10, verse um, 11. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I've now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling, I bet. Then he continued, don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. So the minute that Daniel began praying earlier, word went out and, he, and, and, and so the dispatching of the angels occurred. But Gabriel didn't get to him right away because look what says next. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, 
one of the other archangels. Michael, who fought Satan. Then Michael, one of the chief chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. What? (laughs) What is that scene? What does that even look like? Gabriel, you're the messenger. Fight through the lines. There's going to be kind of an evil prince of the heavenly realms. His name is the Prince of Persia. They'll make movies about him. has nothing to do with this. And, and, And as you go to be able to bring encouragement to my chosen people, along the way, you're going to have the fight of your life. And you're going to duke it out for 21 days. And you're still not going to be able to fight through the lines to get to Daniel. But guess what? I'm going to send the Archangel Michael. And the two of you are going to go shoulder to shoulder. And you're going to bust up those lines. And you're going to punch through. And you're going to help Gabriel get through the spiritual battle. And arrive to be able to give the encouragement to my people. It scares me just even like reading this. I don't even understand it all. Who, who could? But all I know is that's what we have is the biblical data to inform us about us being the multicolored wisdom revealed in us of God and is being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. There's more that you do that provides encouragement in that spiritual warfare. You think, ah, not me, not me, I'm sick, I can't do much. You know what? The fact that you are persevering despite the, the, deck of, the, the hand of cards that was dealt to you, I bet that is encouragement more than you could ever imagine. I bet there are small decisions that you've made that have emboldened those that are engaged in spiritual warfare. I bet there's, there are mighty acts of bravery. We've got sisters in our number who, rather than making a compromise and going the way of the world in romance, have decided, you know what? Christ is enough. And I'm not going to compromise on what Jesus says about really being yoked together only with believers of, of, of Christ. Even though the consequences may be great, it's fine. This life is just a mist. I can't wait to engage in the heavenly, in the eternal. I think when the angels see that, they're like, this is for something. Like, it's like, you go. Like, we don't even know. It's like, you go, boy. Come on. It's like, I, I, again, who, who's, who's to know what, what, what this scene really is? But to know that we matter way more. Then you begin to realize. But that's also more of God's grace. You are so significant in the eyes of God. More than you could ever even begin to imagine. And then finally, this is said at the end. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's verse 12. More literally, what it says there is, You can go in to the presence of God with boldness. Think about, there's a story in the Old Testament of Esther. uh, She's a a wife of the the king, Artaxerxes. favorite, Favorite wife, even. She's afraid to go into the presence of the king. Because if she does it in a wrong way, 
she says to, to Mordecai, her, her, her uncle and her mentor, it's like, Mordecai, don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to go into the presence of the king. If this doesn't go just right, and he doesn't kind of extend the scepter my way, that's it. I'm dead. Like, you think it's really worth it to kind of roll the dice on this thing? And Mordecai's like, you've got no other choice. So you got to do it. Like, oh, all right. I'll... I mean, she's his wife. Now, granted, he probably had a few hundred, but, but she was his favorite. But to, to be able to go in the presence of the king, even, you know, even you think of this day and age, you know, just recently we were over in, in England, you know, and they're like, they're just like bonkers for their monarchs over there. Uh, and, and even just the idea that, that, that one of them might be kind of moving through the streets of the city, they just line up along the, the streets of the city to, to be able to just even get a glimpse of their, of their monarch. What does this say? In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with boldness and confidence. That's the depth of this mystery. That you have been so remade by the grace of Christ. The righteousness that is yours is the very righteousness of Jesus. The status that is Christ's is the status that is yours. This is a picture um, from 1963 with uh, J.J. or JFK Jr. under the desk of JFK. It was in Time Magazine. It was you know, kind of a delightful picture. Why? Because... At the time when the Kennedys were in the White House, tourism to Washington just you know, went, went through the moon. And, and everybody was, was there trying to just get a glimpse of Camelot, of, of the Kennedys. And when this picture then appeared of like, wow, what that must be like. Not just to maybe get a glimpse of the president, but to actually have an all-access pass to the, to the president. And to be able to just run in the door without even knocking. But that's what boldly entering into the presence of God. That you can approach your father and just swing the door open and run on in. And rather than him say, how dare, what? No. Do you know the consequences for that? It's me giving you an amazing hug. Because you are my son, my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Because the way that he feels about Jesus and expresses it through scripture is the way that he feels about you. You're a child of God because of this mystery. You got the inside scoop. You've been brought in. It's all yours. And it eclipses what any of the Jews had. And it eclipses what any of the heroes of the faith had. Even the greatest of the greats of the old covenant don't have what you have. You've got a God who loves you that much. That when you bust open that door, he looks up, not with concern, but he looks up and he locks eyes with you with delight. You're his child. It's exactly what he wants. And exactly what he wants us to, to, to be doing is constantly, constantly entering his presence. Asking him those why questions 70 times over that you don't like your kids asking, that he delights in. Oh, look at how inquisitive she is. Man. Got your picture up on the refrigerator, asking the questions. This, this covenant, this gift covenant makes no sense. That's why it's a mystery. But it is our covenant. And it is such a big deal that we're meant to make not only a statement to the world around us, 
But we make a statement even in the heavenly realms. And as you head out this week, I want to leave you with this thought. Send a message to the heavenly realms by the way that you do church, the way that you love one another, the way that you are the body of Christ, the way that you then express the manifold wisdom of God through the church in the heavenly realms. You're more inspiring than you realize. You're a bigger deal than you want to even give yourselves credit for. But it's who you are and it's who we are together. Let's keep this in mind as we revel in what it is that has been given to us by the mystery, by the gospel, by the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.